and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller. I'm privileged each week to serve as your host and interviewer. I'm also the author of the best-selling series from HarperCollins called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. Volume 1 and Volume 2 are now released on their way to 10 volumes in the 10-decade series, where each year I'm privileged to, with the permission of selected guests from this podcast, write a chapter about 30 people that I think have a transformative insight that was shared on this podcast, sometimes on air, sometimes off air. And I write a short, easy, breezy chapter, kind of chicken soup for the leadership soul style. Would love to have you pick up a copy. It's in print, audio, digital, and now in video book by Lit Video Books. The series is Master Mentors. And who knows, maybe today's guest might even agree to make a cameo appearance in a future version of this book. He is the household name. He is the world's most likely most prominent and accessible astrophysicist. His name is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's just released a new book called Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. Joining us from New York City, Neil, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you, thank you. And I'm delighted to have this opportunity to address the community of, of uh, the, the the landscape of people who you serve, because that landscape, oh my gosh, I mean, there is no civilization without them, right? People who are leaders in whatever is their niche or nook or cranny of the civilization we've all built for ourselves. So I'm delighted to have this occasion. Neil, it's our honor today. I mean, your your books, your commentary, your contribution is, um, it's hard to understate it, it's hard to overstate it. Of all the planets you could have picked to have had in your background, why did you choose Saturn to be off your shoulder? Oh, oh, <laughs> well, Saturn, if you've ever looked at Saturn through a telescope, you wouldn't even be asking that question. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's, the, it's the most stunning planet of all eight, get over it, eight planets. Um, and no, my favorite planet is Earth, but after that, definitely Saturn. So you can't, you can't have enough Saturn in your life. Okay, so from your lips to my ears, you can't have enough Saturn in your life. Neil, rewind. What the heck is an astrophysicist? I mean, I've watched every episode of Big Bang Theory multiple times on planes because I'm too tired to work anymore. For us um, troglodytes, to quote you in the book, what is an astrophysicist? Yeah, so we are a community of folks. There aren't many of us in the world between eight and 10,000 of us. By the way, we're rising through eight billion people in the total population. If you divide those two numbers, we're literally and mathematically one in a million. So if you ever have an astrophysicist in the room with you, even if it's a Zoom room, that's your chance to ask all the questions because you just don't never know when you're gonna be in the company of another astrophysicist. What we do is we take our understandings of nature, uh, uh, chemistry, physics, and lately biology, and we apply them to the greater universe and find all the ways we gain insight in the past, present, and future of the cosmos. So that's what we do. That, that's all we do, and, and we love it. And everybody else concerns themselves with what happens in our atmosphere down to Earth's surface and below. So it's, it's a tall task, but I, I, I think we've, we've done a good job. 
we've got the James Webb Space Telescope up, getting stunning images from nearby to the edge of the universe. We just finished a mission to deflect an asteroid. That should have been happening decades ago, by the way, between you and me. <laughs> right. But um, what we do is highly visible by so many people. And so I don't take that for granted. It's a huge responsibility. Neil, I imagine there are some people out there wondering why is Scott Miller interviewing an astrophysicist on the world's largest leadership podcast? But I think it'll become very clear. Would you give us some sense for how important it is to be thinking and acting and executing both short-term and long-term? And you answer this question in your book as you talk about this common debate is why are we spending money on space exploration and Mars colonization when there's people on Earth that need clothing and food and medicine? And you give kind of credence to both of those. Would you remind all of us, because it's also a leadership competency, is it not, is to focus on the here and now and be thinking about the future and how you, quote, there create that future. Yeah. Make those yeah, connections yeah. for us. Sure. So uh, in the book, I, 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 there are many examples to make many points of the book. The book is all about what the things we do every day th that often divide us, by the way, um, camps that, that rise up, the tribal attitudes about ideas and places and things. And I offer a perspective. I, I offer the reader what they look like when you peer through the lens of science and especially a lens that carries some cosmic perspective with it because everything changes. So uh, let me just give a simple example. And as a leader, this is, this is important, I, I think. All right, let's say we're all in the cave and you are, you are the cave elder, okay, let's say. And you have, you're wise, you've spent many years in the cave, you know all about cave dynamics. And then you have the youngins coming up and they peer out the cave door, right? They just park the cave, I don't know if they had hinges. <laughs> if it's the Flintstones, it's a door on a hinge, right? And so they look out and they see mountains and valleys and, and, and rivers and, and they go to the elder and say, we'd like to explore beyond the cave door. And then the cave elder says, no, we have cave problems that we first need to solve in the cave before we go outside the cave. All right. Now, of course, that's a contrived example, but it's exactly what you sound like to me when I say, let's explore the universe and say, no, we have problems on Earth. Let's solve the Earth problems first before we go anywhere other than Earth. And I with a cosmic perspective, I see Earth as this speck, this, this third rock from the sun, one of 100, 400 billion stars in a galaxy, itself one of 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Uh, there are asteroids with more natural resources on it that have ever been mined in the history of the world. And you're gonna say, don't look up into space? There's unlimited energy in space. You can tell me, don't look up into space. You've heard of rare earth elements? Yeah, they're rare on earth, they're common in space. All right, so I can't embrace the attitude that I have these problems, I need to solve them if you're not gonna look beyond. And the best leaders, yes, they do have access to the moment, yes. Because the moment matters in that moment. But if you don't have a, a, a sight line 
going forward out of your comfort zone, out of the bubble that you that that you were shaped in, then you are doomed to regress, or rather, you will look like you're regressing for having stood still while the rest of the world passes you by. Neil, you are an astrophysicist, not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. But would you take a moment and bring some context for the millions that are watching and listening today on perspective, meaning where we are in the greater sense of humanity on Earth, in the world, in time and space continuum. We're all focused on our small problems and our... Give us some inspiration but reality on how... How how do we live a life of significance and contribution? I, I'd love that. Uh, <laughs> in the midst of uh, endless planets and stars. Correct. Uh, so let me share with you a quote that I, I was uh, given permission to use by the, uh, the daughter of a recently deceased Apollo 14 astronaut, Edgar Mitchell. Okay. Coming back from the moon, uh, he was interviewed in Time magazine, I think it was 1971. Okay, here's the quote. He said, he said, you develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty you want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and drag him a quarter million miles out and say, look at that, you son of a bitch. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> There's a cosmic perspective to end all cosmic perspectives. What it's saying is that, and I'm going to flesh it out for everybody here, but in perhaps some obvious ways, is he, we grew up in a schoolroom that had an earth globe on the back shelf. And what did that globe look like? There were color painted countries that each had a color and a boundary. And, a, and I said, oh, that makes it easier to know which country? Okay, yes. But you know what else it does? It reminds you who your enemies are and who your friends are. We're being inculcated with a tribalistic outlook from the beginning. Whereas from space, especially from out in the moon, you see Earth as nature had intended, with not as color-coded countries, but, but with oceans and land, clouds. And then you say to yourself, on, that on those land masses, there are people who are killing each other because they're born on one side of a line in the sand relative to another, or they have a different skin color, or they pray to a different God, or they sleep with a different person, or they, and they're killing each other. If I'd invited aliens to take a look at this, they would be asking questions. Well, aren't they all the same species? I said, yes. Um, so why are they doing this? Oh, because of this difference that they see. And, and they, you call that a difference? You're all humans. What, what, what? And the aliens will run home and report to their leaders there's no sign of intelligent life on Earth. That's my conclusion. <laughs> Neil, are humans rational people? Are we rational? Uh, we can't, that's a great question. We can be rational. The question is, are we rational in all the places that we ought to be? 
Uh, I think I'm not after an entire rational world because uh, that would be boring. If, if By the way, I think the greatest art ever made is not the product of rational thinking. It's the product of deeply creative thinking that doesn't logically flow from one point to another. So I'm not trying to rationalize the world, but there are occasions where being rational really matters, all right? Uh, for example, in risk-taking, right? Any leader needs to know, when am I gonna take a risk and when am I not? We don't tend to be very good thinking about probability and statistics. There's an entire chapter called Risk and Reward in, in, in it. We're not good at that. And it's not anybody's fault. Uh, Scott, I don't know if you know that the branch of math called probability and statistics did not arrive, was not discovered until after arithmetic, algebra, trigonometry, and calculus. It, it was discovered after. And if it was natural to think statistically about the world, it seems to me it would have been one of the first branches of math to have been established. So I don't wanna blame any one person for, for their susceptibility to the vagaries of statistical analysis. But I'll tell you this, there's an entire industry that has risen up in civilization to exploit that weakness, and they're called casinos. You have people betting on like number seven on the roulette wheel, and I say, well, why are you betting on seven? And they'll say, it's due. And they even show the previous 15 rolled, and it hasn't been, it's due. No, it's not due. Not in the slightest, okay? That's not how this works. There are people who are rolling dice, and if they want to get a, a, a low number, like a three or a four, they roll the dice gently, okay? <laughs> if they want a high number, it's like, really? Oh my gosh. The American Physical Society, which is the, the, the society of physicists in the country, uh, once held their annual meeting in Las Vegas. They were invited there because there was a hotel snafu in San Diego, and they rose up and said, we'll take you. So 4,000 physicists descended on Vegas. At the end of the week was a headline that said, physicists in town, lowest casino take ever. <laughs> and the APS was advised to never come back to the town again. So to, to understand probability and statistics in your decision-making can of course not only affect yourself, but others who might, who you might, uh, who might be depending on you to make the rational decision at the right time and at the right place. Neil, I have weightier questions, but I wanna ask this. I'm gonna ask it in a way that's fairly rudimentary. Um, is there intelligent life on other planets and other galaxies? The humans on Earth are not the only humans in the world. Do other planets and other galaxies have other species like ours? Answer that somehow. We're looking, and we haven't found any yet, but we haven't looked very far. So right. you can't use it as evidence. Uh, the absence of evidence in this case is not evidence of absence. Right. All right. As 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 we say uh, in this world. But on Earth, life formed almost as fast as it possibly could have, and we are made of ingredients: hydrogen and carbon and nitrogen and oxygen. They're the most common ingredients in the universe. So. Whatever forces were operating to generate the life that's here on Earth 
Those same forces exist on other planets and they got the same ingredients. So it would be inexcusably egocentric to suggest that we are the only intelligent, only life in the universe, let alone intelligent life. And further, just, just to give a dose of cosmic perspective here, who determined that humans are intelligent? Who determined that? Well, I've just read it, so I've repeated it. I, we have no idea, right? Humans? No, 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 I humans. tell you who determined that. <laughs> no, you know who determined that humans are intelligent? Humans did. Yeah, okay. right, right. <laughs> so, so the audacity of us to say, let's look for other intelligence just like us. When there could be life forms that are so far beyond us in intelligence that we today look like chimps to us, or worse yet, worms to us. It could be that aliens had visited Earth and were not impressed and had no interest in trying to talk to us any more than you walk by a worm and say, gee, I wonder what that worm is thinking. Let me try to talk to that. No, you don't have those thoughts at all. You, know, you step on the worm. That's what you do. So, uh, so, so it may be, uh, and imagine, take this one step further, that if the aliens are sufficiently smarter than us, for all we know, they created Earth as a literal aquarium terrarium on which to observe life on Earth for their own entertainment. And we would not even know this. You've seen ant farms before in the schoolroom. You know, the, the ants are busy moving grains of sand around. Do they know they're being watched? In a, I don't know. But they seem happy enough and busy enough, just like we do here on Earth. So I will not presume that we are the measure of intelligence in this galaxy. I'm not going there. Let's talk about scientific outlook. You recently told a, a, a Vox interview that um, your book, in essence, is to kind of help people live life more through a scientific outlook. H how do the non-scientifically minded of us adopt a scientific outlook in our lives, in our leadership, in our business, building cultures? How is that valuable? And what does that mean to live your life through a scientific outlook? Yeah, it's a lens, I'd say. You're looking through a lens. So we, we don't need or want everyone to be a scientist. That's not, again, that would be another boring world. I, I greatly value the, the diversity of people's interests, what they become in life, what they wanted to be when they grew up. So that's not what we're after here. But there's certain lessons that are highly absorbable from a science, that scientists do every day, and we, frankly, we take it for granted. So if I get into an argument with another scientist, there's an unwritten pact that either I'm right and you're wrong, you're right and I'm wrong, or we're both wrong. We enter that both knowing this so that when, if, we, if we're at an impasse, we say, you know what we really need is better data. It's a, yeah, you're right. We need better data. Now let's go have a beer. Have you ever seen two people arguing their politics or their religion or there are so many other things that divide us in this world. Have you ever seen them argue and say, oh, I never thought about it that. Oh, that's interesting. Well, let's go have a beer. What's happened in our culture, especially of late, I think it's fed by social media, um, but I don't want to blame it entirely on that. I think it was in us all along, is the, the requirement that if someone has an opinion different from yours, you got to attack them so that their opinion agrees. 
with you. And I'm thinking that's not a pluralistic society. That's not, no, that's not how you advance things. You sit around a table and think of this in the workplace. Are you going to steamroll your ideas on others? They're whole other people. They have a whole other track of life. They have a whole other life experience. Things will look different to them than they do to you. If I'm the leader, I want to know what that is. I have a podcast of my own. I don't think it's as big as your podcast, but I have a podcast. And the and the every the team, the podcast team, we're all really different from each other. And we get on the Zoom call and everyone who speaks, no one else could have possibly said what they said. And it's weird at first. It's like, wait, I have to readjust, readjust the gears. And then you find out, oh my gosh, everybody is bringing their life experience to the next decision we need to make in the interest of the podcast or the interest of the next business decision that needs to get made. We do this in science all the time. And there's not enough of it done in the real world. And that you know that the proving ground is? Uh, the proving ground is Thanksgiving dinner, okay? Where, where the crazy aunt and the, and the weird uncle, everybody comes together and they're fighting over the table. Very different scene from the, from the um, who's the guy, the artist, the illustrator? Rockwell, um, Norman Rockwell. Rockwell, the Norman Rockwell painting with the turkey and everybody smiling and happy. That's not today's Thanksgiving dinner. The, this book will empower you, I, I think, it will empower you to have those conversations in a way that do not lead to disaster at the end. Because it's training how to approach a topic, how to say, well, if you think, if you're sure this is true, is there anything that could change your mind that you can think of? If you can't come up with anything that'll change your mind, you got to admit to yourself, you just want this to be true whether or not actual evidence points differently. If you just want it to be true, the world doesn't always work that way. If you overate this week and you gain three pounds, next week you can't protest the laws of gravity because you don't want it to have made you weigh more. Some things in the physical universe will not respond to your desires, all right? And this is where you need to sift opinion from facts. And many people do not know the distinction. Who would have thought we'd be getting relationship advice from an astrophysicist, but nicely done, my friend. Let's talk about this concept of recognizing objective truth. When all of us as humans have conscious and unconscious biases that exist to protect our own opinions, like you just mentioned, what's the, what's the importance of recognizing objective truth as a leader in an organization, and how do we build that skill while being mindful that not all biases are bad and some biases are actually good when it comes to protecting us from, you know, hitting a car or getting mugged. Talk about how we search for and achieve objective truth in our lives. Yeah, so uh, in the book, there's a whole chapter, Truth and Beauty. And, uh, but the truth part of that Truth and Beauty chapter goes deep into this. And uh, what I tried to do, I didn't want to grab the word truth and give it only one definition. I thought that'd be unfair to groups that have used the word truth for a very long time, including religions. Uh, if you look up religion and truth, the word truth appears on many religious websites. So I don't wanna take that away. But what I do wanna do is highlight a distinction between what might be a personal truth that you have. Again, I'm using the word truth here, but now it's a personal truth. What might 
your personal truth be? It could be, all right, um, Jesus is your savior. That's a personal truth. Or Muhammad is the last prophet on earth. Or, uh, you know, there's any number, you know, uh, um, Superman is the best superhero, okay? These are your personal truths, okay? And in a free society, no one is going to take them from you, all right? I don't have any problem with anybody's personal truth. The difference is if you require that other people hold your personal truth, that will require some strong act of persuasion or the history of that exercise is all out acts of war. That's the challenge of personal truths because you want others to have your personal truth and in a pluralistic society, that is a recipe for disaster, all right? So you keep your personal truth and respect the fact that someone else might have a different personal truth than you. There's another kind of truth, I call it a political truth. This is something that in your head becomes true because it was repeated so often. And this is in a way a bias, right? And it's, the bias has, has understandable evolutionary roots. If you're looking at a phenomenon in nature and it repeats every time, it's probably a true phenomenon. You're not gonna doubt it, but that's been hijacked in modern civilization where they say, let's repeat this thing that I just want you to believe and then you'll start thinking it's true. In the old days, we called it brainwashing. To me today, it's a political truth. The third truth is the truth that scientists are exquisitely trained to establish. I call these objective truths. These are truths that are the results of experiments and observations that are repeated and verified multiple times. When you've done that, that is an emergent truth that is not subject to your opinion. It is true whether or not you believe in it. And it seemed to me, if you're gonna make rules or actions within a workplace that have to apply to everybody, you should distinguish between your personal truths, what you think is true because it's repeated, and then what is objectively true. And then you can build a foundation that is not a house of cards. And the decisions you make will have tap roots that are way more fundamental to your survival than things you were just wishing were true on that landscape. Neil, in a few minutes, I'm gonna ask you to share some of your hazardous predictions about the future. Oh. Uh, before I do that, I had the privilege of interviewing one of my journalistic heroes this week for a future episode, the Pulitzer Prize winning author, Anna Quinlan. She wrote a Newsweek column, a New York Times column, many, many uh, uh, novels, and she wrote a book called A Short Guide to a Happy Life. It was a commencement address she was going to deliver at Villanova, but ended up not. And it went on to sell nearly two million copies, A Short Guide to a Happy Life. If you were going to write volume two of A Short Guide to a Happy Life by Neil deGrasse Tyson, astrophysicist, what would be in your book? And I don't ask this question of anybody else, but I'm interested to know. I, I love that question. As a I physicist, you know, reconciling purpose and spirituality and religion and, and, and legacy and humanity, what would be in your book? I, I love that question. Thank you for asking it. Uh, by the way, my father was a sociologist, uh, so he cared about culture and civilization and people and relationships. Uh, my mother was a gerontologist, later educated as such, after time as a housewife raising uh, my brother, sister, and me. Um, and so I've had a kind of a cultural baptism from very early on.
relative to my science meanderings in the universe. So I've cared about people. I've cared about happiness. I've cared about pathways to fulfillment. And I, I would just say one thing. There are many people who are in search of meaning in life. And I would say that all right, I don't want to stop you, but let me at least alert you that you have more power of your over your life than that search implies. That search implies there's meaning for you waiting for you under a rock behind a tree. You're searching for something. But you have the power to manufacture meaning. You can create meaning in your life, summon it, and deliver it on command. So, for example, for me, how do I derive meaning? I say, I want to, every day I'm alive, in whatever little way I can, I want to lessen the suffering of others. Is it intellectual suffering? Is it physical suffering? Is it, is it uh, psychological suffering? And... Is, is it, is it uh, helping a homeless person? Is it, it doesn't have to be a big thing, but just a little thing. And this infuses goodness in the world. And personally, I derive meaning from that. And what I like about it is it kind of passes it forward. It doesn't only bring meaning back on me when no one else is touched. The fact that I'm touching every people uh, and, 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 and enhancing their lives is the measure of meaning in my own life. In addition, now one that's a little more selfish is, I wanna make sure that every day I learn something new. That I know something tomorrow that I did not know yesterday, no matter how old I am. And we live in a world today where people get out of school, right? Uh, it could be the end of the day or the end of the semester or graduation day, and we know this, they'll throw their books in there and say, school's out. And I'm thinking to myself, what? You're actually happy that you no longer have to learn? Really? Is this, and I, and, and I, don't, I don't wanna blame the students, I'm blaming the school. The school should create an environment where your love of learning just begins when you graduate. So that you lead a life of curiosity, learning things every day, because you're gonna spend way more time not in school than in school. And all that time outside of school, you, in principle, can amass way more knowledge, wisdom, and insight than you could have ever done in the years you spent in school. So those are my two guideposts for every day that I'm alive. And the second to last uh, page of that book is a quote from Horace Mann, educator from two centuries ago, schools named after him, brilliant guy. In his commencement address, he had the following sentence. I beseech you, love that word, there's not enough of it today. I beseech you to treasure in your hearts these my parting words. Be ashamed to die until you have scored some victory for humanity. I want that on my tombstone. Neil, I don't beseech you, but I do ask this question. <laughs> uh, we know that astrophysicists don't gamble. Are most astrophysicists religi religiously agnostic or atheists? In 2023, you see less and less people around the world committed to organized religion, which I think is an important institution in the world, whether or not you know, you're a member or not, they do good things generally. 
in society, whether it be philanthropic or helping people or such, what's generally the view of most astrophysicists on organized religion? So you can, uh, Pew takes these surveys every few years. Uh, it's like Pew or Gallup, I forgot which, you know, the, the big polling sure. agencies. Uh, you can look at what is the religiosity of one demographic versus another. And in the old days, they just ask you, are you religious? And people would say yes or no. Turns out that was not as helpful as because some people go to church just for the cupcakes or for the social life. So you want to distinguish people who are genuinely religious from those who aren't in the survey. And so the question is, do you pray to a personal God to intercede in the events and affairs of your life? If you answer yes to that question, you're religious yes. by anybody's metric. When you ask that question, the American public uh, it's it depends. It's up between eighty and ninety percent. Okay, and that would include maybe people who are spiritual and think there might be some guiding force, but not organized. Just as you let off this question, if you go to people who have graduate degrees, um, that in anything that drops down to sixty percent. People with graduate degrees in the sciences, it drops down to forty percent, between thirty and forty percent. The highest among those are mathematicians and engineers. If you look at uh, how does you split out between chemists and biologists, physicists, astrophysicists, you're down in the single digits to the teens. So the overwhelming majority of people active in the physical sciences are not religious. Okay? Um, so I, I suppose you can call them atheist, but the word atheist as a title it's a weird word because it's a word that describes what you don't do, what you don't believe. There's no word for non-golfers, right? So it's weird that the word even exists when you think about it, okay? Just, uh, is there a word for non, you know, people who don't eat lunch? Is there a word for people who, you know, we don't have words for the negations of things typically. But um, uh, typically when you hear the word, your vision of that person is someone who's like anti-religion and fighting it at every turn. And most scientists I know are just simply not even thinking about it. It's like a non-thought. By the way, Neil, so, it's donuts, not cupcakes, just to remind you, okay? It's donuts. <laughs> My boys want to know, will there be donuts after mass today? And I say, I sure hope so, because you need to be. There you go. Okay. okay, let's end this conversation with some predictions. I loved the beginning of your book, where for several pages, you talk about all the pronouncements of very respected men and women of their time that made embarrassing predictions around what it will and won't happen. And, and, and you don't use that phrase to embarrass them. You just talk about how dangerous it is to make bold predictions. And then you go on to self-acknowledge, hey, let me make some embarrassingly bold predictions about what may or may not happen. Will you talk a bit about what you think 2050 looks like for us here on Earth? Well, that was after a long stretch of pages, like you're correctly remembering, where uh, everybody looks bad predicting 30 years into the future. Everybody. Uh, I'll give a very quick example. Uh, in the early 1990s, there was uh, a, an ad series by AT&T, and it was called You Will. And they'd list a bunch of things that, have you ever wanted to blah, 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 blah? Well, you will, and AT&T will bring it to you. Well, one of those predictions, it was 1992, and... Um, and it showed someone on a lounge chair on a beach, all right? And, and they're on a computer, like a tablet kind of thing. 
and they say, and by the way, and they have this person doing something I've never dreamt of doing, never wanted to do, never did do, and never will do. It said, have you ever wanted to send a fax from the beach? <laughs> well, you will, and AT&T will bring it to you. It's like, no, just because in 1989, the fax machine is like the latest thing, you can send documents to another person, doesn't mean 30 years later, we'll all have multiple fax machines and doing it even more. So, so it's a very precarious perch to stand and make predictions. So after I made fun of all the people's bad predictions, I said, in all fairness to you, the reader, I should make some predictions so that you can shove this in my face in the year 2050. So here's a couple of them. Uh, I think by 2050, almost all cars in the road will be self-driving uh, electric cars, self-driving. And by doing so, we will save the lives of 35,000 people a year. Because self-driving cars are not distracted by texting. By the way, they could text and still drive and not be distracted at all. Uh, self-driving cars don't get sleepy. They don't uh, come home drunk at 2 o'clock in the morning. If they want to change lanes, they tell the other cars, I'm changing lanes, and those cars open for them because they're all self-driving and they all know about each other's existence. They don't lose their way in the fog because they can put on infrared sensors and, and radar sensors. So... I think there's strong forces towards this outcome. And what gives me that confidence? Because in 1905, look at any photo of any major city, especially in the United States, 100% of the transportation in the streets are horse-drawn carriages, horses. We've had horses for thousands of years. We literally and figuratively built civilization on the backs of horses. And within 15 years, you couldn't give away a horse. Everybody was in a couple of horses just for, for entertainment. But, and so if that happened in 15 years, to go from a horse to a car, now I'm going to go from a car to a self-driving electric car. That seems like a much lighter lift than a horse to a car. And so that's why I see that as happening. And one other point, one other one I'm just, um, I hope I foresee, it's really wishful thinking here. Um, we, we like to think of ourselves as humans and we're the top of some evolutionary thing that's a common mindset. But there are plenty of animals out there that do stuff that we literally would die for. For example, a newt can regrow a limb. So the, the, the DNA recipe for regrowing severed appendages already exists in the DNA of life on Earth. So the day we have much more power over the human genome, I'm saying, let's take that strand of DNA, splice that out, put it in humans so we can regrow our limbs. Of course, you give this to, to the military uh, service uh, members who came back with, with injuries and, and amputations and things. They, they're first in line for this. And then everybody else after. I don't see why that should not be. We, again, we're not inventing that out of nothing. We're just borrowing it from other animals. Crabs can regrow, regrow claws. So other animals can do this. Why can't we? Let's improve the genome so that that can happen. I can, I can see that by 2050. Neil, I think it is probably rare to say that uh, astrophysicists don't gamble. They're likely not religious, and they're probably not 
possessing your sense of delivery and frivolity and humor as well. It's been a delight to have you on today, both as a scientist and as someone with insights on Thanksgiving dinner and better relationships. Your current book is Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. Tell us, sir, what's next for you? Well, can I just add one other thing? Just, just one little extra Please. thing. I don't want to take it too over your time slot here. But um, this concept of leader, um, I, I'm afraid of people who want to lead. I, I, I don't, I'm afraid of them in the sense that why do they want to lead? Do they have other agendas? What I would rather see are leaders who are leaders because people follow them. That's a different kind of leader. That's someone who is responsive to the, that's someone who, where it's a, it's a, there's a relationship there. I'm not hoodwinking you into following me either by force or by coercion. No, you're following me because you want to, because I have earned it. Because we, I say things that resonate with you. And so, so for me, leadership, and we talk about our political leaders, you know what I really would rather call them? Our followers. Why not? The president is a follower of ours. Our representatives are our followers. They're not our leaders. I'm thinking that's kind of how it should be in a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So in the leadership universe, uh, everything can't be that in exactly the way I described, of course. But if you're a good listener, why'd you hire the person in the first place? Unless you, uh, what, just as a slave to do what you say? Maybe they have ideas, all right? A whole lot of people have a whole lot of ideas. And there are a lot of leaders who are not interested in them because they only want to do what they want to do. And in my life experience, those do not make the best leaders. So what's the future for me? Um, yeah, I'm recovering from the book. <laughs> the book, like I birthed it uh, whole because it's a life of wisdom and insights and things. And right now I, I want to like go to the Bahamas. Find me in the Bahamas. <laughs> That's where I'll be for the next six months. But I'm, I'm continuing with my podcast, Star Talk, which is an interplay of pop culture and humor and science. Uh, uh, it's I, we found that people learn better when you smile, and when it relates to things that you already care about. And that's been a big part of my my personal mission statement. Neil, truly an honor to have you on today. It's been a delight listening to you bring the sort of ethereal to the practical, to bring some context to what it means to understand where our place is in the world and how to, to quote you, really to manufacture, to create meaning for our life. And all of us have the power to do that. Again, your book is Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. Neil deGrasse Tyson, so delighted you took the time to invest in us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.